Hey guys, breaking the fourth wall here. We recorded this episode about two weeks before the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and Silvergate. Looking back, this conversation with Ben and David feels prescient. Their predictions about the challenges Venture will face in the coming months came true faster than any of us expected. All of this is to say the economic landscape of venture capital has drastically changed in the last 18 months. This episode serves as a sort of conceptual framework for the challenges Web3 and traditional founders will face when they try and raise capital in 2023. I'm Austin, and this is Validated. Today, I'm speaking with Ben Gilbert and David Rosenthal, hosts of Acquired, a podcast that tells the stories behind great companies. In addition to their work on Acquired, both Ben and David have been professional venture capital investors in their past and current lives. Interviews with venture capitalists tend to be my least favorite type of interview. They tend to be navel-gazy, heavy on narrative spin, and light on substance. But this episode, and the one we did a few weeks before with Lee Jin, tell a much more interesting story. If you work for a venture-backed company, even outside of Web3, you'll want to stick around for this one. In our initial preparation for this episode, I was expecting Ben and David to be much more bearish on blockchain given the state of VC crypto investing. But once we got into this conversation, it became clear to me that Ben and David aren't actually bearish on the long-term promise of blockchain. They argued that the current downturns in Web3 venture investing shouldn't be perceived as a symptom unique to Web3. As David puts it, all of venture has gotten whacked. Through the lens of seasoned investors, Ben and David help us zoom out of the present moment of crypto investing. They help us make sense of how we got to where we are today, what's actually going on today, and the future conditions under which investing in crypto will become attractive again. Ben, David, welcome to Validated. Thank Thank you for for having having us. (laughs) Jigs. Austin, I gotta say, this is an amazing name for a crypto decentralized podcast, and uh, I can't believe it wasn't taken. Completely, completely. (laughs) So I guess I wanted to kind of start off with, you guys have been running Acquired for a while, and obviously you both are investors, both professionally and personally. Quasi-professionally in my case. (laughs) Well, yeah, I guess that's fair. (laughs) Um, But what was that, that journey like of seeing this technology wave, looking at it and going, eh, I don't know yet. And then getting to a place where this became interesting to you. Oh, I had, you know, I was, I did computer science undergrad and my college years were 2008 to 2012. So I remember in the 2012 and 13 context, a bunch of people that I was in class with um, were doing some mining. I knew a bunch of people that lost money in Mt. Gox. You know, I followed it a little bit. It seemed super esoteric. Then there was the whole, uh, like significant run up in the what was it 2017 17 time frame and I you know I felt like I missed it but I I followed it closely uh and I don't think I I certainly didn't grasp why Ethereum was different when that came out at the time I was like okay another crypto thing it's like another bitcoin but I I wasn't at the level of familiarity of understanding oh this is a decentralized world computer which is different than a store of value and potential transaction layer remembering back on this, my introduction and experience of crypto was different. I'm pretty sure it all came from Fred Wilson and Union Square Ventures and Fred's AVC blog, uh, which way, way, way back in the day after college, I started my career in New York. I was an investment banker on Wall Street at UBS. 
but I love tech. I was in the TMT group at, at UBS and I always wanted to get into venture and tech. And uh, so being in New York, I started reading Fred's blog. This is, you know, 2007, 2008 timeframe. And then Fred really became like one of the early investors, early VCs that was really interested in crypto and Bitcoin at first and then Ethereum and um they, of course, did Coinbase and several others. So, like, I was was sort of, like, following and thinking about all this from an investing lens, but mostly, like, a, a personal investing lens because it wasn't the sort of thing, certainly at that time, that Madrona, our old firm, would have invested in, you know, in the early 2010s. Yeah, so this is something I'd love to chat a little bit about here because it seemed like there was no interest on the venture capital side in crypto for years and years and years. And then one Except day for the very few people opened. Friend. Yeah, there, there were certainly a few, right? But it was, it was very niche. It was sort of like the weird folks, the same way there's been space investing for a long time. But like most VCs were like, oh, that's that's way far in the future. We're not interested in that kind of stuff. There there were a few visionaries who were early to it. But there, there was a moment where all of these big VCs decided crypto was real and crypto was an investable asset class. And the projects here were interesting and ready to be built on. It felt from the outside like that just happened overnight. In the 2019 timeframe, right? Well, I think there actually was a couple waves of it. I think what you guys are talking about did happen very suddenly in that sort of 2019 timeframe. But there were a couple of weeks, you know, there was there was that early, you know, there was Fred Wilson. He had worked at USV and um, was doing uh, some crypto investing too. So, so there were a very few small number of VCs that were doing it. And then there was, uh, and I'm trying to remember when this was, this was after business school for me. So probably 2014, 2015, there was a wave of venture investing where the, you know, the hot one liner was, I don't believe in Bitcoin, but I believe in the blockchain. <laughs> Do you guys remember yeah. this? Like it yep. was the most VC oh, thing, stupid VC thing to say ever. And like there were a bunch of companies that got funded around that. Ripple being probably the most prominent among them. And, and then others that have, I think, since completely disappeared. Yeah. Do you see that there's sort of this like narrative that moves throughout, especially like the California VC firms? Like we, we saw this in sort of 2016 around suddenly everyone is investing in niche markets and this idea that we can take what was eBay, which was a service for everybody, we can bring that down to like eBay for dog toys. And suddenly yeah. that's yeah. an investable thesis in like 2016. Yeah, I think Andrew Parker, also a USV alum, did a great, he did that seminal graphic of like taking the Craigslist homepage and like breaking apart each category. Like, Yeah, exactly. And like, it felt like something similar kind of happened in in crypto and Web3, sort of maybe this is more in that 2019 time range where something changed in the way that it was broadly seen. And to me, it didn't feel like a technology change as much as almost like a a paradigm shift at the people who worked at some of these funds. Would you do you think that's accurate? Yeah, I think that's right. I, I think there's a slightly more charitable way to frame it where enough people figured out that Ethereum could create dApps. And, and that theoretically should have happened in 2017, but took a couple of years to like really enter the zeitgeist. I think a lot of people who went from investing in crypto for speculation could sort of cross the chasm to, oh, I see. I can invest in these because they're going to make actual web apps 
in in a decentralized manner that have different utility. I don't know what the utility is yet necessarily, or I don't know why different is better, but I understand this is a new computing paradigm. And so then even for the people who didn't really have a thesis around it yet, if they wanted to participate in this, the speculation that was going on, then at least there was like a very plausible explanation for why, which is, God, we've been sitting on our hands for years and years and years since the iPhone. There hasn't been a new computing paradigm. Maybe this is the new computing paradigm. And there was like a, a reasonable enough explanation as mm. to how and why that would be the case. There's a certainly true to that, and that's the charitable explanation. I think there also kind of Austin, as you were implying, is a perhaps less charitable explanation, which is, um, you know, if you think about the incentives of venture firms uh, writ large, like the industry writ large, not any specific firm because they all uh, are different and some certainly don't do this, but the incentive is to raise more money, right? <laughs> For and raise more funds. <laughs> and as Ben was saying, you know, there was this period in the late 20 teens where it wasn't clear what the next platform was going to be, what the next investable opportunities were going to be. Now, in hindsight, things like SaaS were still very, very good investable opportunities through all of that. Um, right. but we didn't was, need another PC or internet or mobile. There yeah. was plenty of growth in. I yeah. think there was a lot yeah. of hand-wringing, though, um, in venture firms of like, what are we going to invest in? And you know, to raise more money, you have to invest the money you have, and then you have to present a compelling story to investors about what you're going to invest in. And so certainly, I think a lot of the boom that we saw, and then things like dedicated crypto funds being raised across many different firms were about like, oh, great, we've got a new product that we can go raise a lot of money from and, you know, juice our AUM, assets under management. You're totally right that that was a time when the excitement in venture was very much shifting away from SaaS. But as we know, the venture firms that continued investing in SaaS, they've had some of the highest returns since that period of time. I mean, Zoom is even a great example of something like this, right? Yep. Different from a venture stage investment. But, you know, we have all these compliance companies that have popped up that are an area that I think most and, and tax compliance companies, which is an area most people would think is not venture and incredibly boring. And there's already a market with Accenture and all those guys. But like, I, I think there's a very interesting parallel here to it seems like sometimes when the public attention moves away, that's when the investment opportunities avail themselves to folks who are actually diligent and willing to stick around and do the work. It's interesting. I, I think it is both the case that there were breakout SaaS companies to be had, and also SaaS was enormously crowded. And so when mm. you're, you know, I, I do this for my day job. When you watch the 10th company come in and pitch you on workflow software to help the office of the X, be it legal or finance or, you know, uh, onboarding engineers or whatever. Like we pretty much know if, if I tell you, hey, a SaaS app to do X, you can basically sketch it out at this point because it's such a known frontier. You can literally visualize what the UI is supposed to do, how you would charge for it, what the user preferences panel would look like. Like it's such a settled frontier. And so you see the 10th one of these pitch you and you're like, God, I don't, I mean, someone's going to win in this market, but like, it's all so mature and all the problems are so well understood that you are sort of pining for, can't I just invest in something Greenfield where they're the only company doing that or at least will be for six to 12 months 
because uh, it gives you a shot at, at having a, a, a quick breakout company. And if you're really, really lucky, then you're right at predicting the next paradigm. And then you get to be one of those investors that was in, involved with the next $100 billion company who sort of saw the future before anybody else. And there's almost no chance of doing that if you are investing in, you know, trying to find the top 1% companies of the last wave. You're just going to be like, okay, great. You managed to three, four, maybe even five X your fund. Most people haven't even heard of the companies in your fund. And there's very little to hang your hat on unless it's with LPs who literally know your returns. Yeah, I think that's such an interesting idea that three or five Xing a fund in three to five years isn't something you can hang your hat on. <laughs> well, he, it's, oh, it's, well, it very much is. It's yeah. just uh, in the right through an, uh, a funny time recently. <laughs> yes, that's fair. So when you guys look around the space now, right, I, I don't know how much investment you or, or funds you are affiliated with have actually made into Web3, but there's been a drawdown in venture across the board. But I think that at least the public perception is that Web3 has been hit particularly hard by that drawdown. What are you sort of seeing today? And how are you thinking about that landscape changing for venture in Web3? Well, I think the reason this landscape has changed so much is, uh, and I, I was trying to come up with a good thesis for this ahead of our episode. And especially a lot of my peers who were really excited about Web3 are suddenly not active. Okay, well, what's going on there? Uh, yeah. I think the biggest thing to look at is when the macro changed, when you have interest rates that go up, there are a lot of very low-risk investment opportunities that have great returns. Like yesterday, I went and bought a 12-month CD for a guaranteed 5%. It is Ooh, the it is nice. the weirdest thing. Yeah. I, two years ago, three years ago, I never thought that I would be on a podcast talking oh, about how cool shoot, it is I mean, to buy 18 CDs. months ago, like, I don't think you were even getting that yield, like, staking, you know, at least on Coinbase. <laughs> right. I mean, I know people who have mortgage rates that are half of that. Yeah. 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 So we're in this world where we have shifted from an abundance of capital. Capital is free. I can go and get more of it whenever I want to fund something that is potentially high risk, potentially speculative, to all of that capital has very good opportunities to for it to be invested elsewhere with very low risk. And so what it does yeah. is if you imagine this sort of curve where you have the highest risk assets way out on the right side of the curve on the x-axis and the lowest risk stuff on the on the left side, everyone who was sort of not finding any attractive investment opportunities anywhere, you know, on the left side of the curve was forced to look to the right. And so now what you basically are seeing is the only people who are way out on the risk curve are people that have extreme conviction that they see a future that other people don't. And all the tourists, everyone who was sort of over there because there was no interesting investment opportunities, you know, in regular high-risk startups or in public companies or in they just couldn't invest in any of these categories because the the multiples were so high. Like the asset inflation yeah. had just gotten so high that you have to chase risk in order to find any return. And now you don't have to chase risk to find return. And so uh, the, the way I would sort of articulate what is happening is the Bitcoin white paper was published in 2009. Uh, the idea of a decentralized computer first became real in 2015-16. We got great things like Solana that are 
fast, efficient, decentralized computers in the sort of late 2019, early 2020 timeframe. And so depending on where you start the clock, if you say that we've had 14 years or you say that we've had seven years, there was sort of this window to find the super high utility use cases for this new technology while the capital was cheap or free, when there was tons of capital looking for or willing to flood into high risk in order to seek return. And now what we're seeing is, okay, well, we're not going to get a lot more capital. So we we as a, we crypto uh, need to find and, and prove the sort of uh, underwritable high utility, real intrinsic value things yeah. with the capital that we've got because everyone's not as incentivized to throw it here anymore. That makes perfect sense. At the same time, you could very much argue that all we've done is shift the units on the scale five points to the right. <laughs> and that, you know, like this is the argument people make about inflation, right? Is that like, mm -hmm. oh, everything has gotten more expensive by proportionally the same amount. And that's why like we run into issues with inflation. But also at the same time, you know, that that 5% yield you're getting is still effectively a 0% yield if we have 5% inflation. Why is that kind of not the case in the in the risk reward people are thinking about in venture? I think it is, you know, and I was going to say um, that the perception is that Web3, you know, has been hit hardest out of, you know, all venture. And, you know, I think that probably is technically true. I wouldn't necessarily argue with that. But I think it's easy being so deep and myopic in venture and in web three to focus on that. But the reality is all of venture has gotten whacked. Like the the difference between, you know, how much web three within, you know, venture writ large has gotten whacked versus how much, you know, venture as a whole. Like, like David, I, the, I totally disagree. It's you totally disagree. Way, oh, way, interesting. Way yeah. Okay. Like I, I, so here seed, we go. This is why we're here. Pre-seed rounds now are something like uh, of regular non-crypto companies are something like six million pre. And in the craziness, you got up to a world where like companies were coming out of YC and doing like 18 million pre effectively. Oh, yeah, uh, I would shoot, I was seeing companies at 40 pre, 50 right. pre. But, but crypto companies, I was seeing at 50 or 100 and like the hottest ones were at like 150 pre product, you know? Yeah. So even from a relative starting position of being the most expensive thing to invest in, even if it just collapsed down to regular levels now. Like, I'm not seeing a premium for crypto companies. I think they're raising pre-seeds at the same prices that everyone else is raising mm. pre-seeds. You know, ju just based on their starting position alone, they got hit the hardest. Yeah, I'm not saying anything that different. Like, I agree that the fall has been farther because it was higher. But I think if you take a step back from actual valuations and be like, what are the odds of a funding event occurring? Whether you're a new company raising mm. a, you know, seed, pre-seed or whatnot, or you're you're an existing company raising a you know a next round yep. like it went from almost you know i don't know over 50 percent, over 70 percent in the past market to now like firms are just very loath to part with capital uh right now as ben was mm. saying and i i think that applies to any type of venture right now that's super fair david like every every fund I know is in preserve capital mode, wait things out. Like, you know, they're not necessarily fully closed for business, but they're like they're triaging their existing portfolio. And for new companies, like the bar is very high. Like, forget what the valuation is. It's just like, are we going to deploy money at all? <laughs> is very high. What do you think is behind that that drawdown across the board? I mean, you can make all these arguments about crypto that 
I, I think, you know, I, I have argued that if you didn't look at price, 2022 was the best year cryptos ever had because it was when we started to get actual mainstream adoption and breakout. You saw some of the largest Web 2 and Web 1 and Web 0 companies like Google actually saying we're going to bring crypto services into the back end of GCP. You saw yep. Starbucks spinning up a thing. You saw lots of <laughs> companies actually making serious you moves You saw lots here. of people buying and using NFTs. Yeah. So I get the thesis on crypto where it's like we had Celsius, we had Three Arrows, we had FTX, we had all of these collapses, the, the confidence has been shaken in the market. But the thing that's kind of, uh, I guess, a little surprising to me is is the trickle down of that into, as David, you're describing venture overall. Okay, so I don't think the, uh, and and maybe this is wrong, but I do not think crypto was the contagion that tanked the startup and public markets. Totally I don't think agree. it was a trickle into, I think crypto was sort of the furthest out on the risk curve when the whole thing collapsed, rather than mm. being the reason why the, these other things have dramatically fallen in value. H- have you talked about the numerator effect and the denominator effect from LPs on this show yet? Because that might be Let's an interesting thing to dive into. We haven't. All right, so... Um, and for f- folks, who, just to set the stage too, for folks who, who don't know, LPs means limited partners. These are the folks who invest in venture funds, mostly institutions, you know, university endowments, pension funds, the like. In- increasingly sovereign wealth. Sovereign wealth funds, yep. So flashback to the 2015 time period. We've got low interest rates. It's been seven, eight years since the great financial crisis. And it appears that you're having to climb further out on the risk curve to find return. And at the time, that didn't mean crypto. At the time, that meant venture capital. You should be allocating more of your investment portfolio to early stage things, higher beta things that could yield these nice big 100x returns like startups. And so these LPs who were previously like 5% exposed to alternative asset classes like venture capital started to tick up seven, eight, nine, ten, up to 15% a few years ago because that's kind of where the opportunity was. And so they ended up a little bit overexposed to higher risk things. And of course, some crypto ended up in there too. And that's a huge problem because say, you know, let's take a university endowment LP because it's easy to understand. Say you're, uh, I don't know, Harvard's a bad example. Uh, let's say you're uh, Vanderbilt. Great, great folks, great investors, great endowment, great university, but a little smaller. I don't know exactly what they're set. Probably single-digit billions, I would guess, endowment. Well, the purpose of that endowment is to spit off cash every year to fund the operations of the university, right? So, like, they invest in venture and private assets, alternative assets that are illiquid to grow the size of the endowment over time. But they have very real cash needs every year to come out of it. And so the majority of the endowment needs to stay invested in liquid securities, in cash, in real estate, in dividend stocks, things like that. And so what Ben's describing, you know, it's like a frog boiling, like, oh, this makes sense, this makes sense. And then all of a sudden you're like, holy crap, where's my cash generative part of my, you know, portfolio? So so this is the numerator effect. Then the public markets, especially if you're invested in a whole bunch of stuff that recently went public because you were invested in venture capital funds that distributed shares to you that you haven't yet sold, the your your public holdings drop by 50%. And then suddenly that 
now the denominator effect kicks in where your 15% exposure to alternative assets or high-risk assets jumps to 30% of your whole portfolio. And suddenly, every single owner of capital or every single steward of capital, these LPs, are hitting the panic button going, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, we are way overexposed on the highest-risk stuff. Uh, we are going to be great partners and we're going to honor all the commitments that we have, but... Maybe Every, I mean I think the top two you know established ones are doing that, but I think there are a lot of LPs that are defaulting on their capital commitments right now. A call will go out from a fund to sit because funds don't take all the cash and have it sit in a bank account at once. They yeah, draw it this is time. a good piece to really <laughs> dig into, as you're saying, is that like you may hear that a company raised a two billion dollar fund, but it's not like they have two billion dollars in a bank right. account waiting right. to be deployed. They right. only have a fraction of that actually. Right. To they use only want to call. Moment the minimum amount that they possibly need to to make an investment one week from now so that their IRR clock doesn't start until they call the capital. Yep. And yeah. this is, uh, you know, this is all um, you know, kind of more esoteric than, but the, the point here is that like for a lot of LPs, again, not the, you know, university endowments and the like, they honor their commitments, but for a lot of LPs out there, they may have these outstanding commitments that they've made and that cash they need to fund into these funds they're now getting requests from these funds saying, hey, you know, that cash you committed to me, now I need another portion of it. A lot of them are saying like, hey guys, I love you, but I don't have the cash right now. So, And, and mm. even if they're not, VCs are very aware of this pressure. So this winds us all the way back to the beginning to why, why did we start talking about this? This is an extreme counter incentive for venture capitalists to deploy funds quickly yes. because it's going to be extremely hard to go raise another fund because every LP is currently just like holding the fort, saying, we're trying to make the commitments we've already made. It's really hard for us to make new commitments right now. So yeah. there's uh, even a little more nuance to it than that. Uh, there's raising another fund. There's also like this dynamic of if I put out a request for a, 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 what's called a capital call, which request my LPs to send me some of the money right now, I'm putting my LPs in a tough spot. I know I am. And so yeah. like, I want to, you know, I don't really want to do that. Right. Because what you're implicitly doing, since none of them have cash on hand, is saying when you send that capital call, which again is a contractually agreed to thing where when you send it, they have to honor the commitment. Yeah. The, uh, the, you're saying- The teeth, the, the remedy if they don't, is you basically like repatriate and nationalize all the cash that they've already given you. Uh, so they lose their entire investment if they don't. <laughs> so what you're basically Im implicitly saying is, hey, uh, I know the market's really low right now, and I know anything that you liquidate is at a terrible price that you don't want to liquidate. Um, but I'm sending you a thing that says, go liquidate a public position to, to be able to fund my capital call, which sucks. And every VC is trying to think in decades, not months, and honor these relationships. And so you're, you're trying to only put people in a tough position when you absolutely have to. So I think this dynamic is the thing that's missed when everyone's like, oh, there's so much dry powder. It's like, how dry is it really? Right. It's dry powder, but it's 40 miles away in a vault in a mountain somewhere and we right. got to go get it. Right. The much right. easier thing to do here as as we're seeing and, and believe me VCs love to take the easy path <laughs> in general uh is uh just don't invest in new companies, right? Like that's there's no penalty for not investing. <laughs> so uh that's a, a mm. huge part of why all these funds are just like Mm, I'll look at a lot of companies right now, but I'm not actually going to make many investments, whether it's Web3 or SaaS or whatever. Yeah, I think that's actually the most dangerous uh, thing for founders. And sort of like, if I'm going to put on my my 
GDP hat and think like, what's the best thing for the the U.S. as a country long term or anyone as a as an economy long term? It's that innovation gets dampened in times like this because people think there's a, available capital to fund their new innovative thing, and they get strung out in a long process where there's actually not capital available. And so we're, you know, counseling all the founders in our portfolio to ask things like, when was the last time you wired a check to a new portfolio company and things like that, just to get a sense of yeah. where where the firm actually is in their current check writing willingness. Yeah, I hear you with that. There's like 12 different directions we could take this <laughs> in. How do you think we get out of this? Well, the beautiful thing about capital markets and venture and all of its subsets are very much a capital market is that they are dynamic self-regulating systems. And the way we get out of it is by exactly what's happening. Like Because capital flows have dried up so much, that means that attractive returns will reemerge as attractive Mm. because like prices are coming down and entrepreneurs who are building great companies, you know, are still out there. They're having a harder time getting funded. You can get into them now, just like the binary. Can I invest is now much more available and can I invest at attractive prices? Thus returns will start to go up over the coming years. Like now is a great time to actually be investing because everybody else is structurally incentivized not to invest as those points start to get put on the board, it will attract more capital back. The flow, the spigots will turn back on and, you know, then I mean, we the, will get yeah, back the, to equilibrium. The very same opportunities that would have cost you $150 million pre two years ago Are now literally six. cost you 6 to $10 million. So yeah. it's like... Uh, to the extent that those companies are going to be able to find more capital in the future and exit, like that's quite a significant multiple uh, uh, on, on whatever your original investment was, assuming that it has a fixed outcome amount. If you look at the sort of isolated to crypto crash in 2017, 2018 after the ICO boom, and then you look at the investments that were made out of it, they were made by relatively new firms that nobody knew of at the time, like the multi-coins and the like that were new startup in incredible projects and opportunities like Solana, right? And then those firms made billions. (laughs) Like the the same thing's going to happen here. Yeah, I think the seed round of Solana was 25 mil valuation. Yeah, right. <laughs> like the, we are now back in those days, and somebody, some buddies are going to make a lot of money, and then that's going to attract more capital back. Yeah. So this is this is the piece that like it it feels confusing from the non-investor side of things as to why this structure is happening, and I think you guys did an incredibly good job laying out where the capital call components really influence how funds are thinking about this. At the same time, though, it feels like the choice to not invest right now seems to be a choice that says things I previously had conviction about, I no longer have conviction about. It's an interesting one because by not deploying capital, there is a criticism that says, it seems like you didn't believe in the thesis your fund was based on. If you felt comfortable deploying capital 150, but you don't feel comfortable deploying capital at 16. Well, this exposes the principal agent problem. So Mm. in a GPLP relationship, you're aligned in most ways, but you're not aligned in some ways. And one of those ways includes the owners of the capital, the principles of capital, don't care about your next fund. Like the dollar in my fund one has no feelings about a dollar in my fund two. But the GP 
totally wants there to be a fund two. And then in right. the boom times was incentivized to deploy fund one dollars pretty quickly so they could go raise a fund two. And even though the fund one dollars don't feel great about that, that's what the incentive was for the GP. The incentive is now completely flipped for the GP to not deploy those fund one dollars so they don't have to go and do the scary exposed thing of trying to raise a fund two in this environment. And so this teases out that principal agent issue where before you might have had enough conviction if you sum your level of conviction with your incentive to deploy you got over the hurdle to be able to write checks whereas now if you sum the level of conviction with the negative incentive to deploy you don't get over that hump yeah and perhaps to even put a finer point on it the um you know saying a, a minute ago it was the, it was new firms after the ICO crash that made these investments. It, I, the dynamic, I think, is that once you have a fund or a couple funds, once you have an established firm, your, as Ben was saying, your set of investments, your visceral set of investments is extremely different than when you are new entering the market. And that's because of management fees. Once you have capital under management, mm. you have a path to getting very wealthy by doing nothing, which is sit there and collect your contractually obligated management fees from managing the fund, which if you're managing a significant amount of capital is life-changing money, <laughs> guaranteed as long as you don't do anything stupid. Yeah, 2% on a $200 million fund is a lot of money a year. Yeah, that's that's a lot of money a year, exactly. It's 2% 2 every year for 10 years, so it's 20% of a $200 million fund, which is $40 million. And a $200 million fund is not that large. Um, right. That's very different from the incentives you have if you are trying to break into the market and generate, you know, uh, interesting enough returns to enable you to raise a fund. Like, it's a total innovator's dilemma type of problem. So I have heard that the first fund of a firm usually outperforms all subsequent funds. Is this part of the dynamic that... It's a survivorship bias. Because <laughs> mo most fund ones actually don't have fund twos. And so there are, uh, the people that are able to raise killer fund twos and threes that you know about are because they had an amazing fund one. And the reason that it's lower is, is uh, reversion to the mean. Like if you're... Uh, I don't know the actual number, but people often cite the lowercase capital fund one, which was like a $10 million fund, Chris Saka's original investment in Uber and Twitter, something like an 80x on a tiny fund. Of course, you're going to have reversion to the mean after that. That is a, you know, four standard deviation event. And so it's like, well, actually, what's going to happen is most fund ones will die. And then a few of these fund ones will do ridiculously well. And then, of course, the funds after that won't do as well because it was like the greatest return in history that is, you know, some component skill, some component luck. But, you know, th there is luck. Yeah. Because you're listening to this podcast, I'm assuming you're interested in staying on top of the latest trends, news and more. So I want to tell you about another show. It's called Web3 with A6NC Crypto. But it's really about the future of the internet, future of creators, future of business, future of the way we work and live. It's for anyone seeking to understand the latest tech trends direct from experts with high insights per minute, given your time and attention are so valuable. Follow Web3 with A6NC in your podcast app now. So there's this famous observed state that no managed fund has ever outperformed an index fund over a long enough time horizon. This doesn't mean that managed funds don't have a role. They just have a very different role than an index fund does. 
How would you describe, you know, venture funds? I think the average venture return over a 10-year period is like negative 0.1%. So on its face, this is a this is a whole class that makes no sense. But there's obviously yep. a reason that this makes sense. What is the reason, like what is the function <laughs> of a venture fund the same way that a managed fund has a function? When you get it right, you get it really right. Well, that is the function. <laughs> there's a couple statistical interesting things about venture that make it uh, different than other asset classes. One is you absolutely do not want to index venture. The median performing venture return, to your point, is 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 not only not S and P 500 beating; it's like bad. So you only want to be in the top quartile, top decile venture funds, of which. Every GP is pretty sure they are, and every LP who's committing capital is pretty sure that they're investing in. Lake will be gone. <laughs> uh, it takes a super long time to know, you know, that you don't know for 10 years where the, the top decile and quintile actually are. But the saving grace is venture versus other asset classes when you compare it against leverage buyouts, PE, uh, public managers. It has extreme persistence of returns. And what do I mean by that? A hedge fund manager who's the best in the world this year, next year, there's almost no correlation between who the current best hedge fund manager is and next year's best hedge fund manager. It's like a complete new dice roll every year. Whereas you go the other side of the spectrum is venture. The Sequoia is probably going to have pretty great returns on their next fund because they had pretty great returns on this fund. The funds are actually predictive of the next fund's returns in venture, or at least directionally correct. And so that's why these sort of top franchises, uh, and, and, and there's lots of speculation as to why. I think it's reasonable to think, oh, it's brand reputation, so your deal flow quality Michael gets Michael Bobison's done a lot of good work on this. Uh, yes. we, uh, we talked about, we had him on Acquired a couple years ago, maybe. We talked a lot about this. Yep. Uh, but that's why there's extreme competition among LPs to get into the top franchises because unlike other asset classes, you actually do know that these are going to be the, the the top quartile funds um, in future years. That's funny. Yeah. I mean, the past performance is no indicator of future returns seems to not necessarily be right. true in venture. Well, but you know, the nuance to that though is things change. <laughs> and nowhere do things change more than in technology and venture. So I think one of the reasons too why you had such a boom in capital flowing into Web3 is everybody, I think, correctly identified that this is a moment when things can change and that dynamic can change. So if you look at, uh, take the, you know, classic, quote unquote, you know, top venture funds out there in traditional venture, Sequoia, Benchmark, you know, Founders Fund, you know, I don't know, who, whoever you want to put into that category of like the been established around for a long time venture funds. Yeah. By and large, although they did some Web3 investing, like I don't, you tell me, you're closer to, to the space than me. I don't think anybody would identify them as like the leaders, the best Web3 investors over this past cycle here. Right. It was newer entrants. I want to kind of shift our our conversation a little bit in this in this direction. You know, I don't think most venture fund investors consider themselves to be like an Ajax investor, <laughs> right? Like a asynchronous JavaScript and XML. <laughs> yes, exactly. Right, and most venture funds don't consider themselves to be a technology investment in terms of a specific piece of underlying technology. If you are investing in SaaS, you're not investing in SaaS built on X or Y or Z. You're investing on a more of a business model than anything else. But what we've seen in venture is some of the best returning funds are 
extremely technical. The place that they have to play in here, I'm thinking of something like Dragonfly Capital or Paradigm, they have engineers on like as GPs who are looking from a technical perspective about how these things work. What about either the stage that crypto is at now or the entire paradigm of that technology makes that dynamic the case when that is not the case in most other classes of venture? I think it may be the stage that crypto has been at. One of the things about this uh, industry is you never know how things will evolve and making predictions is a surefire way to look silly. But I I would guess, I I think it's more likely than not that Web3 crypto investing will evolve to look more like the business model first model that you're you're describing. It's just until recently, perhaps even still now, the technologies have been so immature that you had to be very technical to understand things. Um, you know, I think if you look back at the beginning of SaaS investing, you actually had to be. And when Emergence started as the very first SaaS-focused, SaaS-only investment firm, you had to be relatively technical to understand what was going on. That's true. It kind of didn't seem like it it would work, yeah. right? Like all this traffic coming into a very small set of servers to host a bunch of different companies' applications, like it was reasonably non-consensus. Yeah, and, and, and technical, not just from an engineering standpoint, but also from a financial and investing standpoint. Like it was a very long time before it was broadly understood how good a business SaaS companies were because their accounting is all messed up, right? And so like, if you couldn't see past that accounting, you like the, the, the narrative, certainly on Wall Street, and among a lot of classic VCs was like, hey, SaaS, like these are bad, these are bad companies. And the opposite right. was true, of course. And I think a lot of the same applies to Web3. I actually think if uh, the the literal exact same thing applies to Web3, where because these companies were raising money and capitalizing themselves differently and distributing ownership differently, it required a pretty dedicated person on the yep. team or, in fact, dedicated back office or a completely dedicated new fund to be able to make these types of investments. If crypto investing or Web3 investing had been funding Delaware C-Corps with regular cap tables that happen to be building on these technologies, I actually think it would have been much more integrated into ordinary firms and way fewer specialized firms. Interesting. So one of the critiques that you hear from, well, let's call them the classical investor group, is that there's no revenue model in Web3, which is largely true. Even if you look at like Ethereum after the upgrade that they did that meant that 50% of transaction fees are burned, it's barely deflationary at this point. Like fundamentally, you're still printing more ETH or the reduction rate is, you know, low single digit percentages Mm -hmm. at this point. There's this whole idea of protocol revenue that popped up for a while, which I've always been a pretty big opposition to. I think protocol revenue is a fancy rebrand of uh, value extractive tax as applied (laughs) to a blockchain. It's kind of interesting that like there isn't really like it feels like we're still in the phase of like the web two early growth model of just get a big enough audience and we'll figure out something in the end. And that industry landed on ads and we're not really sure what crypto lands on yet. Which to me, I think you just articulated why there's a freeze in crypto investing right now, because in investing in most companies, there's a whole set of risks I got to get over, you know, uh, 
this, mm-hmm. it, let's be obnoxious about them. This isn't fraud. The founders aren't going to fight and blow this whole thing up. Uh, the, the customers actually want what they're selling. The product is good enough to fulfill the customer's needs. This is a real problem. You know, there's some checklist. And for every crypto company, there's an additional checklist item on top, which is there is a profitable opportunity here to sell something to customers. And I think that everyone's like, wait, hmm. why would I take that risk when there's attractive returns that don't include that risk? And so that to, to me, that this is the way that like crypto can can have billions of dollars flow in is to make that checkbox the same as it is for the Web Easy. two world, which is like, yeah. yeah, there's a business model. Yeah, customers are willing to pay for this. Yeah, there's the, there's positive unit economics in a way where you know the, the company can accrue enterprise value over time because it has free cash flow. It's funny though you mentioned the Web two industry landed on ads, and it's true. This exact same thing happened with internet businesses and Web two. Exact. If you look at the history of Google, it is this. Google raised at the then moment in time like the you know one of the craziest hottest highest valuation for little business traction or opportunity series a's of all time nobody knew what the business model of google was going to be for years for years i mean literally years they made no revenue eh, short short number of years because yeah, they ipo'd yeah. like three and a half years after their founding. uh they were founded in what like 97 98 98 and then the ipo was the ipo was 2004 i think they'd only fin- figured out the business model if i remember right 2001, 2002. But they were enormously cash generative at IPO. At the IPO. Yes, yes, it happened very quickly. But there were, there were, call it two to, somewhere between two and four years, I think, where they were, there was no cash. There was (laughs) no cash. As exemplified (laughs) by Doug Leone's quote. Yeah, uh, right. Right. Which was, oh no, it was Mike Moritz's quote quote that Doug repeated to us, which was uh, that Sequoia, who along with Kleiner invested in Google said, never have we paid so much for so little. <laughs> <laughs> like immediately after wiring the money, they were like, yeah. uh, we got caught up in this one. <laughs> uh, but nobody knew. Nobody knew at the time how, but what they did know was people want this. This provides some utility. And I think if that can be the case, and and I, you know, for a lot of, th- that is still a question mark for a lot of Web3, but, but if you can prove that that's the case, capitalism is such you will always figure out how to make money on that you know (laughs) and that's what google did beautifully (laughs) yeah it's a really interesting one because you've seen a lot of companies that have been on the sidelines of a lot of tech for a while genuinely panicked about ai yeah and it's it's i think that's such an interesting comparison to draw where for whatever reason that has scared the crap out of a huge number of these both publicly traded companies and just sort of old legacy companies to the point where They're just trying to force AI in whatever way possible into their product stack. And that at the same time, this is for whatever reason, they haven't felt the same conviction that crypto is an existential threat to their three to five year future. It is pretty interesting that like you basically every big tech company has done some big, not quite bet the farm thing, but some weird big thing in the last couple of months around AI. I mean, you saw, obviously, Bing Chat being the biggest one. Uh, Saucy Bing. Google's Bard. uh, Facebook Meta just yesterday announced they're organizing a new top-level group, top-level product group around generative AI. 
Amazon, I guess, would be the one where we don't really know what they're going to do yet. They, they presumably need an answer since Azure is going to make a ton of money off of uh, licensing the being the only commercial distributor of OpenAI's APIs. But yeah. you raise this interesting point that like none of them, save for maybe Meta doing Libre or Calibre or what any of the various names or DM, um, yeah, never had like an existential thing around Web three. Right. And even after that, they very quickly pivoted to it's not actually crypto, it's the metaverse, which I think we've seen play out rather poorly across the board for companies that felt that fear. Yeah. I feel like we can keep going for another hour here, but I've got to let you guys go soon. Before we wrap up, if listeners aren't in the acquired family yet, what episode should they start with? Well, first of all, you can find David and I podcasting in any podcast player by searching Acquired or going to Acquired.fm. You've said that before, Ben, haven't you? I know. (laughs) I'm on Twitter at at Gilbert, G-I-L-B-E-R-T. David is at DJ Rosent, D-J-R-O-S-E-N-T. And um, if you want what I I truly feel is, is like probably the best canonical zero to one on Bitcoin or Ethereum on like coming up to speed from what are the fundamental pieces of technology that enable this to work? What's the full story? Why are these interesting revolutionary technologies? Then the Bitcoin and Ethereum episodes are pretty did, seminal yeah. pieces of acquired well, work. Well, what we did, we really um, we really tried to tell the history of like yeah. how yeah, do these things fair. come about. I would also plug the SpaceX episode. I think that was one of the more fun episodes. It's kind of an older one yeah. at this point, but that just the the story there that takes you into so much background that maybe you that I didn't know as someone who thought I knew SpaceX pretty well was fascinating to me. Well, Ben David, thanks so much for joining us on Validated. You bet. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Validated is produced by Ray Belli with help from Ross Cohen, Brandon Ector, Amira Valiani, and Ainsley Medford. Engineering by Tyler Morissette.